banded together by a mutual yearning for the more simplistic times and random fun of the comic books of yesteryear. Alec Berry and Scott Gardner now travel back. Back to the bins! What's up, everybody, and welcome to the seventh episode of Back to the Bins, the show where me and Scott, Scott, say hi. Hey, how's it going? See, Scott's happy to be here. This is the show where we review old comics because we feel like it. So, so you don't have to. <laughs> so you don't have to read them. Exactly. Why waste your quarter on Wildcats number three and just, you know... We do it for you. We take the pain, and we record it in audio so that you can listen to it. But, yeah, that's our mission here at Back to the Bin. So, Scott, I'm going to hand it off to you. Oh, excellent, excellent. Well, that, that, that's only part of, a, part of the story is, uh, you know, the bad ones we're reading so that you don't have to. But, uh, you know, we're, we're also hoping to cover the really good ones and get, and get you intrigued to where you'll maybe – Here's something that uh, that whets your appetite, and you go, "Ooh, now I got to go seek that out. I gotta, I gotta find out what happens or, or whatever." Anyway, my book for this week is Avengers Volume One, Number Two Twenty Seven. This is the January nineteen eighty three issue of the Avengers, written by uh, Roger Stern. Um, one of my absolute favorite comic book writers, by the way, and this is the beginning of his run. This is the first uh, issue, regular issue by uh, by Stern that began quite a lengthy run uh, of him on the book, um, penciled uh, by Sal Buscema with inks by Brett Breeding, and uh, worth noting that Mark Grunewald was the editor on this. Um, I like Grunewald's writing, and he edited a lot of Marvel books, too, and uh, I miss him a lot. He was really a, a class he's, act in He's comics. tied to the Avengers quite well. So. Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So this book here, this one features Thor, Iron Man, Captain America, the new Captain Marvel. This is the, uh, the female Captain Marvel, the She-Hulk, Hawkeye, and the Wasp, and this was also when... Uh, Hank Pym was uh, in prison awaiting his trial. Uh, we start out the issue, some gorgeous, gorgeous art in this issue, by the way. And uh, we start out the issue where the Avengers are all gathered around and Iron Man and Thor are setting up some giant Kirby-ass doohickey. And they're going to be testing Captain Marvel's powers. Now, Captain Marvel at this point had only been around just a brief time. She had just been introduced in, I think it was a Spider-Man Annual or something like that. She had just popped up. Yeah, Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 16. There's a footnote in here. And they're basically testing her powers. So she converts herself to energy, zaps out into the atmosphere, and relays herself around the world via satellite, and then comes back to the Avengers. And it was basically a test of her powers. Also see, I guess, how fast she could do it and what different types of energy she could turn into and stuff like that. It's all very interesting and all, and it got me to thinking, you know, one of these days I'm going to have to hunt up some more stuff about this Captain Marvel because I just really don't know all that much about her, and I've never really understood, you know, what use are her powers. I know what she can do as far as she can turn herself into, 
you know, like gamma rays or X rays or, you know, light or whatever, but you know, what, what is the practical use of that power? That's the part I've never understood. You know, whenever I've seen her in different appearances or what, she's usually colored like, you know, she's all yellow or she's all green or something because she's converted to some other type of energy. But I just don't know how that, how useful a power that really is. I mean, you know, great. She can turn herself in, into x-rays. You know, what can she do? I can turn myself into a couch potato. Doesn't mean I have a great superpower, you know? So anyway... We go along the issue, and uh, there's not a whole lot of action per se, but I tell you, I really love this issue because this type of issue exemplifies why uh, Roger Stern is one of my absolute favorite comic book writers because he can take a story where there's no villain, there's no fight, there's no tussle or nothing gets torn up or destroyed or anything and he can still make it awesome just by pure character development and character interaction, laying down a lot of little plot threads, uh, you know, just a lot of, you know, character reflection and introspection and stuff like that. And it, this book is just jam-packed full of it. I mean, every character gets at least a moment to you know, have a little bit of development or some sort of inner monologue or, you know, just all kinds of different plot threads all over the place. And it's really very interesting, you know, all the places the story could go just by, you know, little moments different characters have, you know, where they're in conflict or they're in turmoil or they're just, you know, trying to decide, you know, do I really belong with the Avengers or do I have the time to devote to the team or whatever, just all kinds of stuff going on. So basically it's a early Brian Bendis issue. Kind of, yeah. Kind of that same, same type of thing. <laughs> no action, a lot of dialogue. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, it's, it's done interestingly though. And it's not drug over, you know, eight issues either. You know, this is all in one. So they're not watching but, uh, TV. No, no, just, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, the characters trying to figure out, you know, where where are they heading as a team, you know, some conflict with Hawkeye, of course, you know, because he's, you know, the green arrow of the team. He's always got to be a dick and keep everybody all worked up all the time. Um, also, a nice little cameo, well, a little bit more than a cameo appearance, but uh, I don't know, it's, it's two pages, so I guess it qualifies as a cameo. Nice little cameo with uh, Reed Richards in... Uh, Sue Richards of the Fantastic Four, you know, meeting, um, um, what's her name, Wasp in uh, Central Park, you know, where they are having a little dinner and just talking and, uh, you know, just kind of going over some of her problems. And, you know, Sue sees right through the fact that, you know, she's just putting on a brave face that, you know, she really is stressed out and, and a woman on the edge because of, you know, everything that's going on in her life. You know, this is at the point where, She's, you know, either just going through or just gone through her divorce from Hank Pym. You know, she's the Avengers leader at this point. So she's just got a lot going on. And uh, and Sue, you know, wonders, you know, how much longer she's going to be able to just put up this, this brave front. Then the story, basically the rest of the issue is devoted to Hank Pym. And if you read the recent um, Secret Invasion I think it was called Secret Invasion Requiem, where it was yeah. the like the memorial of Wasp death issue. Then this plays very similarly. It really is pretty much a, a really interesting 
rundown of the entire history of Hank Pym, you know, through his, his, you know, beginnings as Ant-Man, through all of his different identities. And, but what I liked was that it also, it was slight retcon as far as it laid a lot of the, the seeds for his mental, uh, deterioration, you know, where, where he gets to the point where by the end of this, you know, he's doing just some wacky, crazy stuff, turning on the Avengers and everything. And then eventually this is what winds him up in prison is that he apparently got used by, by Egghead for doing some crazy thing. He tried to steal some adamantium or something. I don't know. I haven't actually read the story that, that leads up to his imprisonment. So I'm actually, this story is about two years ahead of where I'm actually at reading the Avengers. Cause I'm, I've been slowly making my way chronologically through Avengers history. So this is a little bit in my future uh, of where I'm at, but, uh, it just I, the opportunity came up to to check this issue out, and I had to read it. I really enjoyed it. Um, it's really nice art, and that was one of my biggest notes about this issue. Was you know one of the the better runs in comics in the '80s that you really hardly ever hear people talk about is Stern's run on the Avengers. And any time I've ever read any of the issues, you know, I've always gotten a kick out of them. I've always enjoyed them. They've, they've always been fantastic. But you just really don't hear people talk about them all that much. And I think that maybe one of the reasons that they are not more highly regarded is the fact of, sadly, the, the art in those issues just a lot of times isn't great. You know, I want to, don't want to say it's bad. I don't want to knock anybody, but a lot of the stuff was done by, uh, by Alan Milgram and, you know, he's a serviceable artist, but he's just not one of those flashy guys. He's not one of those solid artists that, that just has legions of fans. Whereas you look at the art in this issue here and it just makes me really sad for the fact that, wow, you know, it's too bad they couldn't have kept this art team because this is solid stuff. I mean, Sal Buscema's, you know, always been a solid artist, but uh, Breeding's inks on this really, you know, are, are really tight. They're very nice. And it's a nice mix between, you know, Sal Buscema, who is a bit old school by this point, and then Breeding, who, who gives it a very modern, you know, modern for the 80s anyway, modern feel to it. And uh, it's just really nice stuff. It's a shame that they couldn't have stuck around longer. I think... If I'm not mistaken, I think this was the last or, or maybe the only issue that, that uh, Buscema did for uh, Stern on the Avengers. I could be wrong on that, but I know that he was gone within a couple issues anyway, if, if not the very next issue. And, uh, and Milgram came in and did most, if not all, of the rest of the Stern runs. So just a shame that, the, that they couldn't have kept this team a little bit longer, but that was kind of the par for the course back then was these rotating art teams and you know people in and out and that sort of thing but uh anyway avengers 227 it was a solid read good fun and uh, i want to see where the story develops from here find out what the heck is up with uh with hank pym he's a nutcase that kind of brings up another question in my mind is that you know throughout like kind of comic book publishing history you always hear like the great runs you know and such by creators Mm -hmm. What is, like, a great Avengers run? Like, the only one I can really think about that gets a lot of praise is the Busaic uh, Perez run. Like, I don't know, you probably know more than I do. What would be, in your opinion, like, some of the great Avengers runs by creators? 
Oh gosh, that's a that's a tough one. The, the two I mean, that come immediately to mind are the the original George Perez run, and I'm struggling to remember who the writer was on that. I think it might have been Steve Engelhart. I don't know somebody somebody write in or or leave a post and let us know. Um, I, I, I'm see, I like doing this show strictly off the top of my head, but sometimes that comes back to bite me too because my memory's not always that good. But the the original. Perez uh, art run with whoever the writer was on that. That was some really solid stuff. Um, also, the burn run that that basically followed the the Perez run. I'm trying to remember what issues those were. It was pre two hundred, and that was some solid stuff too. Like when uh, when they introduced uh, Guy Rich and stuff like that. Those were some really good stories. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's kind of hit and miss because the, there weren't really. Other than those two, I mean, I'm probably forgetting something, but there there weren't real long runs that were great. It was more like short story arcs, or usually just you know, the, uh, so many of them were kind of done in one issues or that sort of thing. And, and the teams and the writers and artists changed so much that I don't know. It's kind of like you know the original Justice League of America run. You know, there's not a whole lot of stories in there that. You know, runs. I mean, that stand out either. You know, there's there's storylines that that stand out, but you know, I, I couldn't think of like a whole great big long stretch of great issues. You know, it's usually you know three, four here and there. You know, through the years that are good, and then the rest are just eh. And that's that's yeah. kind of how Avengers are for me. Is you know, there's you know, there's good storylines, but not you know like year long runs that were awesome. You know, it might come down to even like. You know, team books aren't necessarily the easiest things to write. I mean, you know, that might be a reason that why, you know, you don't have a necessarily, like, go-to uh, run on the Avengers with a writer or such. Because, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of creator teams switched out, and that might be why is because, you know, how many times can you have the Avengers save the planet? You know, right. how, how many times can you tell that story before it gets old? And that That probably might be a factor into it, so... Well, that's why I like this issue so much, and that's that's why I like Stern so much because he he did you know he does a, a similar thing with all books that he works on, but he did you know he he was very successful doing that with Avengers, and he was also very successful, I feel, when he did that with the post-crisis Superman. You know that there were some stories that he did with Superman that were excellent, where you know Superman wasn't saving the city or he's saving the planet; he was just you know, hanging out and talking to somebody, you know, Lois or whoever. And sometimes those can be really enjoyable issues too. Sometimes they can be the best issues when, you know, you're really just getting some some character development and some world building rather than, you know, some great big huge epic, you know, some master battle or whatever. And I, I like those. And that's what I liked about it, this issue. You know, my review may have made it sound like it was a little dry and boring, but it actually was really a lot of fun because, you know, you you were getting inside the characters for a change rather than just seeing them duke it out with, you know, Baron Zemo for the millionth time or whatever. I, I like those kind of issues. I do think even as much as I kind of knock Bendis on the Avengers right now, I think maybe in 10 years, if you look back at it, it will be kind of one of those Avengers runs that are probably like a must-read for a Marvel fan because, you know, you got to admit it, it has had a lot of effect on the Marvel Universe for a couple of years. So mm-hmm. I hate to say it, but God help us all if that becomes like the definitive Avengers run. <laughs> 
Uh, well, you know, you asked about great runs. You know, I think most of the of the third the the third volume of Avengers, you know, that ran from Heroes Return right up through um, Avengers Disassembled, most of that is great stuff. I mean, there was a little bit of a fumble right after Perez left, and I believe, if I'm remembering the order correctly, Perez left, and I believe it was. Uh, Stuart Immerman stepped in for a while. And as much as I like him, that stuff just didn't do anything for me. And then it picked up again, you know, a little bit after that. And from that point to basically the end of the series, I think all that stuff is fantastic. I've heard some of it knocked because of, you know, who the writer was or who the artists are or whatever. But I thought that stuff was pretty solid, too. I thought they were doing some good work on that book. All right. Is it my turn? Yeah. All right, well, it's nothing close to the Avengers. We're going to go with a solo character this time, and I'm going to go right to my love of early image comics, and I'm pulling out Spawn number 12, <laughs> written and drawn by Todd McFarlane, and this is a book that you sent me, Scott. So oh, okay. I'll be reviewing this on the show. And uh, this is, you know... What, for the past 11 issues of Spawn, the mystery has kind of been building of who killed Spawn and why. And this issue is kind of a, a accumulation of that overall storyline and kind of leads into the next issue. But to kind of give a little uh, synopsis, we find Spawn at the beginning uh, atop his kind of like his hideout, his hangout, uh, the church rooftop. Uh, there's a nice kind of two-page uh, pin-up style uh, spread that I do I do like quite a bit. You know, you find those often in image books, but I think it was a pretty nice one there, and it had some you know it had the narration boxes going across the two pages. And I think it worked pretty well. But you find him at the beginning at the top of this church, and Spawn's kind of wondering is why do I keep being drawn back to this certain spot? You know, why do I come here all the time, uh, and not go anywhere else? And he kind of realizes that this church is where he got married. And this is like really the only spot that he was ever happy at. And uh, you kind of get the flashback of him in his, on his wedding day, uh, you know, getting hitched. Uh, grandma's there, and he kind of starts remembering his grandmother as being an influential, influential person in his lifestyle. And uh, kind of thinking about paying her a visit to maybe find out more about his past, his Al Simmons. Uh, with the next page, we flip to... Uh, a scene with the office at the office of Jason Wynn of the CIA, and they're kind of discussing uh, sort of the dark past of Al Simmons, and uh, you kind of get the idea that these guys are responsible for his death, but we're not exactly sure how. Uh, they're all kind of covered in shadows, and they're they're kind of talking about events and characters we're not exactly sure about at this point, but you know I'm sure that you'll figure them out eventually. Uh, moving on to the next page, we find that Al Simmons kind of disguised in a kind of like a big coat and a hat, uh, trying to keep his face hidden as he visits his kind of old blind grandmother. And uh, she's kind of just chilling on the porch. And uh, he starts talking, and she just can automatically recognize him, even though he's got this kind of like weird muffled voice. I don't ask me why or how. But uh, she kind of starts just talking to him, and he kind of gives her uh, gives him the lowdown of his problems, and he's wondering whether his wife, Wanda, uh, still even kind of misses him and, and uh, loves him and such. And she kind of plants the hope in him that she does uh, because they've been talking a lot lately. So, you know, he kind of – he she leaves Spawn, Al Simmons, in kind of good uh, good spirits. 
as he leaves and he kind of gets this almost like heroic sense of hope and that, you know, even though he's this hell spawn, that maybe there is some sort of good left in him. And it's kind of this, it's this really kind of cool poignant moment uh, where you think the character might just not be all as bad as you think. Next page is just, it's it's three panels <laughs> of just kind of like media coverage uh, a la Dark Knight Returns. Uh, you kind of get, you know, CNN, the entertainment news, kind of the local news. They're all kind of complaining about, uh, you know, this mysterious appearance of this Spawn character and all the, the city gangs and such. And, you know, they're just bitching like they always bitch. You know, that's the media's job. And then we go to the next page, and uh, it's a couple of detectives. And they're kind of just investigating the Spawn guy and why these criminals are winding up with the crap beat out of them and all that and such. Uh, you know, nothing new there. Moving on, we find Wanda with her daughter, uh, just kind of taking a stroll in the park. And they meet up with, uh, Wanda's new husband, uh, who was also, was also Al Simmons' partner and basically best friend when he was alive. Uh, now him and Wanda are married and they have a kid. So that's kind of a interesting little, you know, piece of drama right there to put into the character. And as I'm flipping now, I just, <laughs> I love the early image, but Jesus Christ, Rob Liefeld, he's just, he has this Blood Wolf 2 pinup in here, and it's just, it's not good. <laughs> but uh, next issue, Spawn by Walter Simonson, so that's something to look forward to. Uh, but continuing on with the story, uh, Wanda and the new husband uh, show back up at their place, and this husband, this guy, he's... Uh, He's met up with two kind of shady-looking characters, bodyguard types, and uh, they're basically telling him that uh, they need to come with him or, hey, wouldn't it be a shame if something were to happen to your wife and kid? So, you know, that... Uh, and they're apparently working for this uh, Jason Wynn, and, you know, they probably have a past uh, with Al Simmons. We find Spawn kind of hanging out with a bunch of hobos on the street and streets in New York. This was kind of established in a couple past ep- issues that uh, Spawn is living on the street with homeless people, <laughs> just in back alleys. And they're drunk, and they're so- singing the Flintstones theme song, which I just kind of got a good laugh out of. Uh, they're all just kind of sitting around telling jokes, telling good old stories, you know, good old things hobos do. And... Then, one of the hobos, who's kind of like the main jokester, uh, he finds Spawn's mask as he's taking it off and puts it on. But the mask, uh, as we all know, Spawn's costume is not in his control. It's a a living organism, a living spawn of hell. And uh, it really kind of just goes to rip the guy's face off. Spawn manages to get it back off of his face. And that kind of just says, hey, you can't screw around with this costume because, you know what, I don't even know... Uh, what it's all about, or I don't even have the control over it. And uh, after after he kind of goes off like this, he starts having these flashbacks of his past, and, you know, uh, more kind of the Spawn history. He really doesn't know uh, why he is Spawn right now. He really barely knows how he died or his previous life of Al Simmons. But he starts having these flashbacks of, uh, you know, uh, his funeral... And, you know, this map of where he might have been when he died. And then he starts seeing this skull em- emblem. And he kind of gets the idea that, uh, some, that somebody was hired to kill him. And this somebody, boom, we turn to the splash page and we get this somebody is a character named Chapel. And he looks a lot like Bushman from Moon Knight. 
the main Moon Knight arch nemesis. You know, he's got the big guns and the the jungle knives and such, such, and he's got like kind of the tattooed face. But uh, on the last page, he's chopping Spawn's head off, and uh, that's it for there. And uh, you know, you go to the letter page. And you've got this guy. I, I, this is kind of what I love about these letter pages in Spawn is that Todd McFarlane wasn't afraid to print like the most obscene, critical, just bashing letters that he could find. And this one guy, he writes a paragraph in and he basically just tells uh, McFarlane and all of the image creators that they're basically just a bunch of hypocrites because – they went and complained about the big two uh, going in it for all the money and, you know, trying to sell their characters. And now the image creators are basically rolling in the dough with image because they're selling all these books. And he basically <laughs> just, like, just tells them off. And McFarlane just kind of just says, you know, he's like, you know, usually when you write a letter, you try to uh, give your main point and then support it and just set instead of just kind of going all over the place. And he just kind of tears them up. But it's it's really kind of funny. Uh, artwork in this issue, I really don't mind McFarlane's art that much. I actually, I thought, you know, usually when artists go to write their own books, I thought this was actually pretty well written compared to, like, a lot of other things I've read of artists trying to write. Uh, maybe that's just me. <laughs> you know, somebody out there is probably just kind of shaking their head that I think early Spawn issues are well written, but I, I really do think this was pretty well written. And uh, I like I liked the artwork. I thought the flow throughout the panels was pretty decent. I thought it was better than a lot of the other early other early image books. So I mean, I think these actually hold up. You know, the early spawn actually hold help, hold up for kind of present day reading, which that ain't all bad. You know, I think that's kind of a that shows a lot about the work, and I, I really just enjoyed this book. Yeah, I don't know. I honestly don't know a whole lot about spawn i've read the first uh i think it was the first trade which was what about six issues i think five six issues and i I remember really enjoying it but i don't remember much about it to be honest with you i always thought he uh he reminded me a lot of like a like a supernatural version of deathlock and i always thought it'd be really cool if uh, if spawn and deathlock could ever team up and compare, you know, similarities in their origins, basically, because they both got a very similar uh, origin story. But, uh, yeah, I remember really, you know, from what I've seen of it, I always liked uh, McFarlane's art on Spawn. I, I, I don't know if it's just because it was his own project and his baby and, or what, but I, I think his art took a step back up. And, you know, and his writing definitely came into its own when, when he went to Spawn, because I remember... You know, a lot of people criticized him when he went from being just the Spider-Man artist on Amazing Spider-Man, and then they created the whole new adjectiveless Spider-Man title just to give him a book that he could write and draw of Spider-Man. And a lot of people, you know, they were impressed with the art, but they weren't so impressed with his writing. But then when he struck out in his own and, and did Spawn and everything, you know, a lot of people said, well, you know, he's finally come into his own as a writer and all. And I can remember, you know, the, the accolades that he got for that. And I, I enjoyed what I what I read of Spawn. I just haven't ever read a whole lot of it. But I think his art definitely stepped back up because somehow between that transition between from Hulk to Spider-Man to the, you know, specially created Spider-Man title for him, it was like. 
it was like three steps. It went from being awesome on Hulk to being, eh, it was okay with the Spider-Man stuff. And then the solo Spider-Man stuff he did, I thought was a real step down. It just looked too rushed or something. But then he got to the spawn stuff and it's like, boom, you know, he was right back, you know, with his A game again. And I don't know. I, I, I'd, I'd have to revisit some of that stuff myself to see if I if I think his uh, his art style has you know has survived well or not because it's so ingrained in the in the 90s now and you know the 90s has become such a dirty word in comics that it's it's tough sometimes to divorce yourself from all the negative things that the 90s were for comics and and still appreciate you know, what was what was nice or what was good about it. So I don't know. I'd have to re-examine some of that stuff and, and see for myself. We got a taste of that, you know, when we when you were talking about uh, Amazing Spider-Man, what was it, 309? Yeah. Before, you know, I I was looking at that cover on that one and just going, wow, you know, that this isn't as awesome as I remember it to be. But that was just one image, you know, that was just that one cover. So. Well, I mean, the reason that a lot of people thought that he was so awesome when he came out is because it was so different. You know, that's a lot of the right. reason that those image books sold early on because the artwork was really just kind of revolutionary in a way. You know, it was big splash right. pages. It was really just energetic artwork. I mean, it really... As much as those guys get beefed on, it really was sort of the stepping stones to the modern age comic art that we have today. You know, that's why right. it was so popular, at least I think, is that it was just something different and people never saw this before, you know. Well, the problem I think was, though, you know, in fairness, that McFarlane was new and original and, and something we hadn't seen before. And so many of these other guys, you know, whether they were talented or not, so many of them were just cloning him. And so you basically had an entire company made up of clones of one guy. And I think that was part of that glut that people talk about, you know, the, the, the whole 90s style. It was basically a, a 90s style of McFarlane imitators. And it took a long time, you know, for, you know, to basically two things happened out of that was that, you know, they either had to eventually develop their own style. Like, uh, I, I mean, I look at Eric Larson. You look at Larson's, you know, stuff when he was first immediately following uh, McFarlane when McFarlane left uh, Amazing Spider-Man. You look at Larson and he's just aping the same style. But then you look at Larson today, he's a completely different artist. I mean, he's come into his own. He has a, a you know, an Eric Larson style that's his, all his own, but he didn't start that way. So, you know, you had, you know, artists that developed that, you know, became their own artists or they just withered and died. And you don't, you know, they're, they're names that, you know, nobody remembers today because they didn't survive the 90s. They, they weren't anything other than a Todd McFarlane clone. And there were a hell of a lot of those guys in the 90s, particularly Image. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you got to respect the early Image. At least I do. Oh, I do. I absolutely I do. Yeah, I really do. And, you know, I don't I'm not I'm not down on it like so many other people. And I, I think what helps me not to be down on it is I missed it, you know? Yeah. I mean I was in comics at the time, but I wasn't on board with that whole thing. I was, you know, I was still with my big two and basically ignoring what was going on in indie books and stuff, and it's only, you know, in retrospect I've really discovered any of that stuff. And found it to not be, you know, the the you know the abominations that it's been touted to be or whatever. You know, I found a you know something of value in most everything I've read from from them. I'm gonna make you That's feel old, Scott. You know, 19, uh -oh. 1992 that image started. 
Uh-huh. That was the year I was born. Oh, God. <laughs> so the year oh, image started, God. I was born. So maybe it's destiny. I like them. Holy cow. Yep. That does make me feel old because 92 does not seem very long ago to me at all. Hey, man, 17 not years. 17 years. <laughs> and I am currently building a spawn run. I'm going to get every issue from today past. So any listeners, you have spawn issues, you think they're crap, throw them at me. <laughs> it's the only time I'm ever going to advertise myself on this show. So any crappy you think spawns crap, throw it at me. All right. Hey, well, I'll put that. I'll put that out there for anything. I mean, you want to send us books? <laughs> send us books, man. I'll take anything. I don't care if you think it's crap. I'll read it. I'll I'll, I'll review it on the show. Yep. I'm all for that. I love comics, even shit comics. I love them. Shit comics are cool. There you go. There's, there's something. There's something to be said for a good crappy comic. You know, if nothing else, you can bust on it really good. <laughs> And with that thought in mind, we wrap up another episode of Back to the Bins. If you have any sort of feedback, please email the show at backtothebins at gmail.com. All feedback is appreciated and accepted. Back to the Bins is an Alec Berry, Scott Gardner production, copyright 2009. Please join us again next time and we will go back. Back to the Bins. Chicken's it wild chicken.